Welcome, everybody, to Journey to the Stage. This is a podcast that features musical guests from across styles and genres, artists who are just getting started, and some like my guests today who have had decades in music. Before we get started, if you can consider sharing this episode, leaving a kind review or throwing some stars my way, that's always very much appreciated. And any songs that are used in this episode are used under fair use for educational and commentary purposes or by permission. So like several of my previous guests, my guest today was on my wish list of artists that I wanted to have on once I started launching Journey to the Stage. My guest today is the one and only Mike Stand. Mike is a singer, songwriter, and guitar player with decades in music and in ministry as part of the Altar Boys Clash of Symbols as a solo artist and most recently as part of the rockabilly band, the Altar Billies. So it's my pleasure today to welcome Mike Stand. Mike, welcome to Journey to the Stage. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Really great to be here. And everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. How are you guys doing these days? I know you're on uh, East, uh, Christmas break right now still, right? Yeah, a little bit of a break and uh, doing good. Nancy's here. She's working hard. And my daughter Thanks. just recently uh, graduated from college, which we're proud of. Very and cool. And I was supposed to go see my son today up at his fancy-dancy highfalutin studio in Bel Air, but... Uh, they're busy working on a film score and can't see old dad today. So he's getting gotcha. ready to record um, a new Demi Lovato record. And he works a lot with a guy named Jutes. One busy boy. But I don't think I really enjoy that commute from Orange County to L.A. every day. But uh, he does it. I'm proud of him. Wow. I know he's made quite a name for himself. He's had uh, really tied in with Demi. And uh, it's just it's kind of neat to see him spread his wings a little bit. That must be cool for you as a dad. Yeah, he works hard. He's, he's doing it, but man, woo. That's quite yeah. a, quite a, quite a lot going on there. He's got, he's doing That's it. That's awesome. So what we're going to do today, we'll do a little bit of a flyover of some of the, your earliest days and then dig into your career. You've got a long and great history in music and ministry and love to touch on some of the high points of that. So, were you yes. b- born and raised in SoCal? And what was early days like and that kind of thing? Okay, well, briefly, I was uh, born right here in Orange, uh, just about a mile or two from here at St. Joseph's Hospital. Was raised mostly in, in Fullerton, California. Lived a spell in Porterville and a little bit in Tustin, but most of my life spent uh, going between my mom and my grandparents. Uh, being raised by a single mom with four boys. My wow. father passed away when I was uh, very young at, at 60 years old. I'm, I mean, oh. 1960. My dad was 40. And so, you know, that whole thing, to me, it was normal life. But I look back now, my brother and I talk a lot about it. And just like, it was it was pretty crazy. So, yeah. uh, by the grace of God, we made it through. Well, yeah, my dad died early as well, right? Actually, about the same age, forty, maybe forty-two. So I was just a uh, just a youngin, and uh, yeah, yeah. I know how that can that can be rough. 
It's really that. well, yeah, yeah, you, you know, looking back, yeah. I mean, especially I think what changed is when you become a dad and then you realize everything you missed, so you try to give that to your kids. You know, what you missed and it's like not having a parent or someone at my sporting events or when I play was kind of normal for me. But, you know, for me as a dad, I was at everything my kids did. And so it just changed. You know, well, my dad couldn't be there. My mom, single mom working. And and plus it was a different time back then, too. Sure. Very different. Sure. No, I definitely can understand that. And, you know, I'm with you as a dad. We could try to compensate for what we didn't have uh, when we were when we were kids. So I totally understand. Yeah. And Fullerton, you know, it's, I was thinking I was working on one of my old fenders today uh, a couple of days ago, getting it up and going. I was thinking, man, I lived in the city where Fullerton in Fullerton where Fender guitars were. I mean, we go to the factory, but we did want to go in because we were just nervous. We found out they had. You could go to a certain area there by the Fender factory, and they let you in and show you. And we never thought about doing that. It was right down the street from us. He's like, you know, no go there, man. They'll 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 call the cops on you. So you know, yeah. I'm thinking back, a lot of people, kids would go over there and they let them in and fix stuff or show them stuff. And I just didn't. I didn't know that was in Fullerton. Yeah, I love Fullerton. So I g- grew up in L.A. And then when uh, when I was dating my wife, she lived in Fullerton, really close to kind of the uptown little area. And I just found out that our favorite Italian restaurant in yes. downtown is closing Angelo and Vinci's. Mm-hmm. This is this is heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Right by Fox Fullerton. Yeah. The Fox. Yep. Right next door. Yeah. That, we ate there quite a bit. Yeah, same here. We took our boys there, and yeah, I just saw an article come out about a month ago that the owners have sold it, and it's. I'm like, no, like there are yes. some, some some waitresses uh, have been there for 30 years and even longer. Oh. It's kind of sad. Was there a lot of uh, music played in your home? Was your mom, you know, very no. musical? Well, my brothers were all very musical. I had four brothers. My oldest brother played drums. My second oldest brother, John, played guitar. Okay, and then he taught me how to play guitar and so mostly what i would do is i'd play rhythm guitar and he'd play lead and if i got something wrong he'd kick me <laughs> that's brotherly then, love right there <laughs> yeah i kick me. don't all right if i want to stop i've been playing for a half hour can i stop no kick you know they brought in a lot of interest interesting music they had bands kids over and they would jam all the time and i would sometimes jam along with them then my youngest brother played drums and he later played for the drums for the lifesavers Nobody else in my family. Then the Crandall side, right? Jeff Crandall, who plays drums for Ultra Boys. That side of the family was very musical, but nobody else. We didn't have a value. And I always wonder about that because in in elementary school, when all the kids were playing, you know, uh, you could play violin or you could play clarinet, but you had to buy or rent the instrument. And we didn't have the money to do that. So, you know, I just had a crummy guitar that I would that I would play, which most people start on crummy guitars. But my family just didn't understand the value of music like I did with my kids. You know, my kids, my son started off with drums, two and a half, piano, four years old, violin, seven years old, viola, nine years old, sent him to Orange County High School of the Arts. My my daughter took violin nice. and piano. Like, like I said, it was just a different, different time. But yeah. I always tell the kids that I teach, you know, we have in Santa Ana Unified, we have 
a ton of instruments. I just say, you're mm-hmm. really fortunate to have these these instruments. When I grew up, we didn't have things like this. I would watch right. kids go to band and they'd have their little clarinet sitting down there and take off. And I always think, gosh, I wish I could have something like that. And, yeah, you know, I'm teaching a little, uh, I got these fifth grade kids playing rockabilly and I got a whole room full of band gear. I got guitars <laughs> yeah, and drums right. and, and, you know, I don't rub it in because they're kids. They don't totally understand, but I just try to say, Hey, I hope you value this. We, appreciate we get that. This. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate this. And of course they do to a point, but they're kids, right? When you hit uh, your teen years and started maybe developing your own musical tastes and, you know, the kind of stuff that really captured you as a listener, what, what kind of bands, artists, what, what really captured you back then? Well, you know, I always was like into a plethora of, of music and I sang in, in choir. So I always, I loved all the choir music we did. On the rock side, I've, I've always loved the Beatles and anybody from the British Invasion. Not a big Stones fan. Nothing personal yeah. against them. Just not a big Rolling Stones fan. I'm actually with you there. There are a few songs I like, but yeah, I'm I'm with you. Not not a not a huge fan at all. Not a huge, but yeah, I'm not taking. They're great. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. But you know, uh, Credence and and particularly uh, people joke about Grand Funk Railroad because they were the, always the underdogs, but. Uh, you know, it, 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 back then, you know, you, there was just the music was so vast and different. There were so many genres blending together, but it all mm-hmm. worked. You know, you had the Eagles versus Boston and you had uh, John Denver along with Queen. I mean, it all Elton right. John, you kind of all worked together. So I introduced my school to David, my high school to David Bowie. They oh, never wow. heard of him. Yeah. And I said, you got to get into this guy. This guy's really good. And, and of course, I, I love the 50s music, but I didn't, unless you had somebody had a record collection, it was really hard to track that down. So, you know, I knew the basics of Rock Around the Clock and Hound Dog and, and some of those other ones, but didn't scratch below the surface until obviously later on. But I yeah. did have a tendency to really like the 50s stuff. Any of your brothers still play? Not really. No, no. Not Kevin doesn't play that much. A little bit. Brother John still got nice gear. I'm real fortunate my age to still be playing as much as I do. I, yeah. I know that. Yeah. I really am. You know, still creating, kind of reinventing myself. I have to pinch myself. Well, you know, there are a lot of guitar players out there, as you know, and, and lots of singers and, and lots that do both. But most of them can't write songs or, or at least good ones. Um, what was it that made you as a young musician want to try your hand at writing what motivated you to do that well you know i always came up with little jingles little silly little songs but i i never put it together that i could be a songwriter i i never thought of myself much as a singer i've never thought of myself much as a guitar player and or as a songwriter i kind of try my hand at little things in high school but you know, I just didn't have the confidence. Uh, I lacked that confidence to do that. And it really wasn't until I started playing. Um, I come out of my life as a Christian. I started like seriously writing songs about my relationship with God and just Christianity as I understood it. The, the early songs I wrote with a band called Image, which was with Jeff Crandall and his brother Bill. 
they were kind of the style of that day, just not real good. And it really wasn't until I started the Altar Boys that I thought, well, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I can write Beatles music sped up. I can try this. But I didn't really consider myself that I had any kind of knack for it. I just mm. did it because Jeff and I wanted to start this group and do this music. We didn't have a songwriter. But I said, I'll write some songs until we find someone. And I guess I'll sing until we find someone. And I guess I'll be the spokesman until we find someone. <laughs> we auditioned so many people. In fact, one of the Did people you? you have to interview, you have to interview Steve Panier. He's got amazing stories uh, about his auditioning with us and things that happened um, that I, I don't remember. But he's yeah. just hilarious to talk to. He is, he's got such a memory about what, what happened, as well as Jeff. They both have a yeah. different skew on things. But it really wasn't until it really wasn't until I wrote "You Found Me" that mm-hmm. I realized, okay, I got a, I got kind of a knack for this. Yeah, I, I can do this, and I just kept going and getting a little better at it. And I was very surprised that I could do it. That if I would just put my mind to it and the time, that I could write a decent song with a decent hook and melody and and lyrics. And I just could kept developing it over time. But I really kind of fell into it. It was never anything I thought I could do. That's for the other guys. That's for those other people over there. And I always grew up with my friend Paul, who was a better singer. He was an amazing singer. And I was in his shadow. And mm. I would just, him and I would play and we'd, in, in my teen years. And he would uh, he would always take the lead because he was the better singer than me. And I'd just do harmony and everyone saw he'd pitch a song to me that I would do, which was usually a 50s song, like Hound yeah. Dog or something like oh, that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it wasn't until the Altar Boys that I realized, okay, I, and I still don't picture myself as a singer. And it's really odd. So when people say you have a real nice voice, I kind of like, oh, well, thank you. I never <laughs> think of myself as that. How long did do you think it took you to feel comfortable as a front man? Because I think in both in both of your bands, Alter Boys, Alter Billies, I think you're a great front man. Uh, very engaging, very much moved by the music. How long did it take you to feel kind of comfortable in those shoes? It wasn't that I came to a point. It's just I just kind of did it and mm-hmm. figured out what kind of worked and always from my from the audience standpoint of what I would like to see. You know, it's just one of those things over time. You try this, you do this, and you've done it for so long that eventually you just realize that's your that's your role. But from the first Alter Boys performance, I felt, okay, well, this is what I'm going to have to do. So it, it kind of ebbs and flows. At times you're comfortable. You're like, I can do this. Other times you're like, what am I doing up here? <laughs> I hear that. So Alter Boys, you guys, was it 82 that you guys first got together? 82 okay. and 84, July 84. Yeah, 82, we got together in July. 82 was our first concert. That's right. Yes. Wow, where'd you guys play? Where was your first gig? It was First Baptist Fullerton. We have a video we did over the summer. Where we were uh, Steve, Jeff, and I went back to Fullerton, back to the place where we played, and did a kind of uh, review of just what happened that day. We have pictures from that day. No video, but pictures from that day mm-hmm. that we took of our first concert. And just... Steve going through what he felt, and Jeff. It was Jeff's church. And, I mean, from that, from the time with that first performance, the band just kind of took off. 
Well, and I had no idea, and I don't know how I missed this, but until I was doing my prep work for our time together, that you and Jeff Crandall are cousins, I really had no idea. And I don't know how I didn't know that, but... I thought I it was common knowledge. Yes, we're it cousins. Probably, <laughs> yeah, it probably is for everybody. So what's the what's the relationship like on what uh, side? His mom is my mom's sister. Oh, okay. Yes, one of very, the sisters. Cool. Yes, Aunt Fran. She was the younger of my mom uh, by a couple years. All right, all right. So 1984, Alter Billy's One comes out. And then you guys were off. You know, you talked about that first gig and... That was kind of your launching point. Alter Billies? Oh, I'm sorry. Alter Boys. Did I say Alter oh, Billies? That's okay. I, I make the mistake I, anyway. Sometimes <laughs> I'll say, I'll say Alter Boys, and Chuck and Johnny will look at me and go, oh, wrong sorry. Wrong band. <laughs> 82 is when we, we uh, did our first show, and Jeff and I had the idea for Alter Boys in 81. Oh, okay. Yeah. It didn't, you know, once we found Steve, and then we got Ron, we'd gone through a lot of people to figure yeah. out who would work. And we're look again. We were looking for a songwriter, a singer, and a frontman, and <laughs> couldn't find either. So yeah. I did it by pure default. <laughs> well, and thankfully so. Now, was it difficult for you guys in some corners to to be accepted during that period of time? Maybe within the church, was that did that present any particular challenges to you guys in some quarters? That's a good question. No, I know a lot of people talk about that, but. We never got much resistance that I saw. Maybe I was mm-hmm. blind to it. Occasionally, a little bit, what are you guys doing? But we, we, it, when we got those, we're like real puzzled because for us, we knew exactly what we were doing and what our right. purpose was. But not a lot. Not a lot. Okay. I mean, not like some other people. At that period of time, were you able to do music full time? Were you guys able to, you know, to do enough to sustain you guys? Well, we tried that in 86, and it, we just weren't set up to do that. We weren't very good businessmen, and that's a whole other story. We tried, but it just yeah. wasn't meant to be. Well, it's very tough. I mean, and that's you're right. There's the business aspect of it as well as the musical aspect of it, and most bands are great at making music, but it's it's the rest of it that could be really, really challenging, so... Yeah, we didn't do very good. I, I didn't. And, you know, uh, it continuously comes back to haunt me, unfortunately. I just have to put it in God's hands because yeah, yeah that's a whole other thing. I'd rather not go down that path. Uh, yeah. It's painful sometimes. Sure. But I have to re- remember God brings us to mind or something brings us to mind. And in the end, it all goes back to God. And mm-hmm. God has reasons for everything and i look right. back at the course of my life and and the taken and i'm where i'm supposed to be right now right and despite some of the things that i thought should have gone another way or i wished had in the long run i this is where i'm supposed to be by the grace mm-hmm. of god and i'm thankful mm-hmm. for that regardless of what happened you know yeah. i can't control that i did my best god took our path was the path that was meant to be right and i can rest in that it's a good perspective. It helps for what we don't understand. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Now you and and Steve and Jeff and Rick, you guys spent a lot of time on the road back then. When you think back to those those years, those tours, hours in the van, what are some of the things that come to mind? Maybe some good memories um, when you think back to all of that. Well, we we did have a lot of fun. 
And, uh, of course, Steve left in 85 the first time, uh, like March of 85. So he was with us up till then, and then he started the fourth watch. He wanted to do something else um, where he, you know, because I was writing so many songs, and Rick would bring in these little jewels, and Steve wanted to explore on his own, which he, we remained friends and everything I understood. I think at first it was all new and fun. In fact, I looked over the no I just found the notes to our 1986 tour that the three of us did, uh, what happened, and there we went on a short tour of the East Coast. And for the most part, it was it was really great. Uh, but, you know, there's a, a side where, you know, people think you pull in these towns and it's you're driving around and seeing the country. And but there was always a little bit of a price to be paid. Sure. With that. And um, I, I do look back now and I wish I'd enjoy, enjoyed a little more of it um, mm-hmm. during the time. It was hard to do because, like you said, always that financial thing. You know, my, my right. our wives had to go back to work. And we were gone for long periods. Those were the challenges we had to face. And by the, like I said, by the grace of God, he made it all work. But at the time, it was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? But, you know, we had the Garmon Key Tour, and that was good. But it was tough. And then towards the, when after Forever Mercy came out and Steve came back, we had some great tours that we went on East Coast Tour. Nice. And that was a lot of fun. There's a little bit of a price to be paid, and that's kind of part of it. There is. And I think sometimes listeners maybe don't appreciate that the, the time spent away from family, the sacrifices that family has to give can be quite high. And yes. uh, I, I think it's good for people to, to keep that in mind. And, it, and hopefully that will encourage people to continue to support artists that they love, because oftentimes they're paying a price that they don't even understand. Yeah, true. And but it's our choice, too. So there's that. <laughs> right, right. No one put a gun to my head. Sure. But it's something I had to do. So now once the first album came out, you guys were pretty much putting out a new album every year. That's Yeah, I know. That is breakneck. So it was studio release tour. I mean, that's that can be at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And writing and trying to be good husbands. And yeah, I I looked at that and I've gone, wow. I mean, it's 84, 85, going to Rebel, 86, got love and music, 87. Against the Green, 88, I did Do I Stand Alone, plus I was gone for six months out of the year on tour. 89 was Forever Mercy, 90 mm-hmm. was Simple Expression, 91 was No Substitute. Yeah. And then a little break, and then I went to Clash of Symbols. I think 93 was uh, Sunday, a different proposition, and 94 was Begging at Temple Gate. Now, when you guys, in 89, when you guys released Forever Mercy, you toured that album, then you wrote a batch of new songs, went in the studio and began the recording process, and then kind of called it a day. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. What Walk us through that. What What was that period of time like for you? Or is that maybe too raw still? No, no, not at all. Leaving 90, Rick decided to leave. By that time, Steve was back. Then we had various bass players. We had Bob Wooler play bass. And then a guy named Mark Robertson yeah, great came guy. in. It was one, and, and well, let's see, I'll just make it short. At one point, Bob just couldn't make a couldn't make some gigs. Mm-hmm. And we, like the night before, he couldn't go. And so we had to find a bass player. The night before, 
And we wow. got we called Matt Chapman, and he wasn't available. And Matt said, "Try Mark Robertson." We called Mark up. I said, "Mark, you're available tomorrow to go on some flight dates." <laughs> he met us at the airport. <laughs> and when Mark joined the group, I mean, Rick was great. I mean, he was so creative and a great bass player. But when Mark joined the group, he gave us kind of some new life. He's a pro. He's a great player. Oh, he's unbelievable. He's a neat guy, and he just was yeah. And me jump right in. I just got some creative energy, and I'm like, I'm going to write a new record with Mark in mind. And I wanted to write new songs that captured this the hooks and the anthems of the Ultra Boys, but I've come such a so far with my lyrics, and that mm-hmm. was kind of the, the basis of No Substitute. So I wrote those. No Substitute is based on a line where Steve would always say whenever we get to a gig that, if we messed up, he'd say, remember, there's no substitute for volume. Just play louder. And I wrote a song about it. And But then, as fate would have it, Steve, we laugh about it now. He got mad at me again. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh. And then, and then Mark decided to move to Nashville. And so Jeff and I were left, and we had some other players, and we called it a day. But we had those recordings, those basic recordings of no substitute. But... We just knew, thought it just wasn't meant to be, and yeah, I always yeah. thought that was kind of sad. But I knew the songs were good, and I said oh, maybe someday we'll get to it, and we did, and released it in 2018. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a second. And it's it's crazy to me because I was just thinking about this last night that the Alter Boys turned 40 last year. Yes, how is that even possible? <laughs> Oh, I look back and I'm just like crazy. I go, 80s, didn't that, or 90s, didn't that just happen? <laughs> Wasn't that just like Wasn't a few that years long ago? ago? Just yeah. <laughs> yeah, now you guys would periodically, you would do some festivals, you'd play Cornerstone, you would do this periodically and you know, kind of stay in touch with each other. And all, all that time, of course, you had this incomplete album sitting in the proverbial shoebox somewhere. Did that album, you know, over the years, did it come to mind and say, you know, one of these days... I'm going to get back to that. Or one of these days we're going to finish that. Like, Actually, I just thought to myself, how sad we didn't finish that record. Well, there must be a mm-hmm. reason. I'm busy. Everybody's busy. I lamented it a little bit, but I just thought it just wasn't meant to be. Yeah. And so I, I didn't think about it. I mean, I, I at the time, I was in Alterbillies. I had plenty of songs. I was playing a lot. I had my family. Mm-hmm. I had enough, you know, yeah. to do besides finishing that record. I didn't even think about it. What made you want to dust it off? And then when you did, what was it like for you the first time re-listening to that? Because it's a little bit of a time capsule, right? From a, a, a different time for you, different period in your life, different stage. Let me try to condense this. Uh, in 2017, I had vocal nodules, uh, hemorrhaging vocal cords, really bad. So I had to have an operation to get them repaired, which I was scared to death. I had... So suffering with this for six months, and I was suffering. Mm. Yeah, it was pretty depressing and difficult to function. So I had the operation, Dr. Verma Irvine, who I'd highly recommend. I had to take three weeks off school. I've never taken three weeks off for any illness at all. I didn't know what to do with myself. I don't know, on a whim, I got out my tape deck and decided to fix it, and I decided to listen to some of these tracks. My son was home, and I went in and motioned for him. I couldn't talk because I just had the operation. Motioned for him to come in to listen to these, mm-hmm. these songs. And he's listening. He's like, what is this, Dad? Who is this? 
this is really good. And I kind of wrote down, this is no substitute. We, I got, got the idea, the genesis, that we should finish it. Keith and I transferred whatever we had uh, over digitally, and I sent them to Steve. I sent them to Mark, and I sent just the raw tracks to Steve. That was the only people, I think, at the time. Maybe Chad, who does a lot of our videos, he had put the idea in my in my mind, too. Mm-hmm. And I sent to him, and they said, we should finish this. This is great. So from that point on, we decided that was something we were going to finish. Now, we took one step at a time. So I do a little work on it. Doors just started opening up little by little. And before we know it, we were finishing it up, and it wound up being this great record that um, uh, my son and I primarily worked on. We got Jeff in here to do some work, and Steve and Mark was recorded all the bass tracks in Nashville, and we got it done. It's it's a miracle. It's a miracle record. It really, really is because it is a time capsule. Those vocals from that album recorded back in 1991 and 1993, most of the guitar work was done back in that time period. We added drums, bass, background vocals, and I overdubbed a few guitar parts. But we didn't change any of the lead vocals. We might have edited a few things out, but we didn't change anything. That is a time capsule. That is no substitute. And it's a miracle. Who does that? What band does that? Nobody does that. I mean, the Beatles did a little bit with Free as a Bird and a few things like that, but a whole record of decent quality material. It's pretty rare. It captures kind of the synthesis of everything good about the Altar Boys. You know? I've said it before, but I'm with Steve that I think No Substitute is the best Altar Boys album. You know, the, the tricky part is, you know, albums like glm and against the grain there's so much filled with nostalgia for people like me who grew up with those albums but i i think you're right from a writing perspective a production perspective i mean from a playing perspective it's just it's so great and it is it's actually my my favorite album by you guys oh thank you Uh, thanks yeah i think well the thing about glm it captured a point in time yeah absolutely. along with when you're rebel both those particular records did you know for whatever they lacked sonically they captured a point in time and connected with an audience where this is years down down the line well cool we're gonna play the title track right now this is no substitute from the album by the same name by the altar boys
I just love this song. It's so catchy. It's hopeful. It's true. You alluded to this a little bit, that it comes from something that Mike used to say about no substitute for volume. I, I like that. I didn't know that. Before. Steve, That's... Steve. Oh, yeah, Steve, Steve said, said that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mike, remember, there's no substitute for volume. No substitute. That's a good hook line. Yeah. That I can write something about. And I, I love the, the chorus. There's no substitute. For the hope we found in you. On the day we must choose, there will be no substitute. I love that. It's simple and so true. And it's so simple, catchy. man. Yes. And that's that's the altar boys. But then it's got the ver- the verses that are just, you know, they dig below the surface a little bit. There's a little yeah. more going on there. Yeah. And that was pr- on purpose. Very much on purpose. And as much as I love that song, it's not my favorite on the album. My My personal favorite is History Comes Back to haunt this world that is my absolute favorite song i love that song one of the things i want to kind of go over to is a little bit about clash of symbols because that kind of gets glossed over a little bit and that was really important to me and Mm -hmm. uh, my relationship with rob well let's talk about that so that was when the ultra boys came to its end you went back to school but you did you stayed very active obviously clash of symbols was very much a part of that time was that were you working on that while you were in school? Kind of fill that in, in terms of where that fits in your timeline. Well, really the way it works is this young man by the name of Rob Garib was at Cal State Fullerton. And Rob, we had met at St. Andrew's Church, and then I just kind of reconnected him. And we, he was a musician, he's a guitar player, 
great, and we became friends. He helped out the altar boys a lot, and then we started working together musically a little bit. Just kind of the relationship developed. But I said, yeah, we got, you know, there's there's Nirvana, there's Pearl Jam, there's Stone Temple Pilots. I want to kind of explore that. And, and, you know, I was taking a lot of classes to Kelsey Fullerton that were spurring me on a little more as a thinker. So some of the songs are a little more philosophical with hook lines. And, you know, it just wound up, we wrote these really neat songs together or he yeah. wrote on his own and we worked with Steve Latination and Matt Chapman. And it was short lived. I think God allowed us to do it. And it was a great message in the songs. But one of the things that came out of this is uh, Rob and R's relation, my relationship and him and I have remained close. In fact, with no substitute, Rob was really important in helping with the mixing and different oh, okay. aspects of that record. Well, you guys had a good run. Three three albums is, they're all really good. 2018, kind of moving back to No Substitute a little bit, you guys released that. You have the release party. Thanks for the invitation to that. I absolutely had a, had a great, great time. Yeah, and glad then, you made that. It had some great pictures too, by the way. So one night, one gig, House of Blues, you guys get back up on stage. Tell us about taking the stage with those guys again after a you know a decent amount of time since you guys had all played together and kind of busting out these songs for the first time. Some of them for the very first time and others for many, many years. What was that like for you guys? Well, you know, it was fantastic. I mean, it was one thing to get that record done. Yeah, it was like, we got it done. And then to do this, I mean, the night before on the 15th, we had a record release party with about, I don't know, you were there, 150, 100, I don't yeah. know, it was a lot of people. Yeah, We had a nice time of presentation and got a chance to talk to people. It was fantastic. And then that next night to hit the stage with those guys it was surreal i didn't think it was ever going to happen again yeah you know and you uh, guys sounded so so good i just absolutely loved that yeah and i think for the first half we had my son playing drums on the newer stuff and a few things and jeff took over and you know mark's just an amazing player i mean he's, he he's, she's just turning it up right now with the eskimo brothers of course being the shack shakers and Everybody else in Nashville, he's got a really successful career right, going right now, and I'm really, really happy for him. And then yeah. Steve was just, I think he, in recent years, and I'll just speak into Steve, he's really got an appreciation for this band. You know, he had a different perspective. He's been through a lot. Yeah. But he's just come to me so many times and recently said, Mike, that was just an amazing thing we did. What an amazing mm -hmm. time to have. And then to do that again in 2018, and um, yeah, to play these so those songs again, and to do that, I didn't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it coming. How fun to play when you're rebel again, and you found oh, me and yeah. play them like we used to do. Unconditional and the new love. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was such a great, great night. I was fortunate to be right up against the stage. And as you mentioned, I, I was able to take some some great pictures. In fact, the, the picture I'll use for this podcast episode will be one I took from that night. And uh, it was so, so fun to have Krumbacher play with you guys as well. That was, uh, that was quite a, quite a night. You know, kind of walk us through those moments before you went up on stage. Did you feel any butterflies? Was it Oh, I always feel butterflies. Well, we were we you know we were in the 
parish room. So not the big giant room. I And the prayer chain had done that room and whatever. We were fine with where we were. And it was packed. So we were connected kind of the backstage area was that. And we were just together. And I just kind of come to the point right now with a lot of things where I got nothing to lose. <laughs> we're going to go out there. They're waiting for us. Everybody wants us to do a good job. But I've got nothing yeah. to lose. It's like right. I've been able to do so much. And then, you know, I talked about that briefly before we started the interview. And so to do that was like a cherry on top, and um, I was just grateful to be there. In fact, I had to kind of calm my nerves. I just went through the audience before and just start talking to everyone right before the show. Is there any recording from the board, anything from that night that you guys had done that might make its way uh, out to a release at some point? No, I I don't think so. Now, your current band, the, the Alter Billy, is obviously completely different from the Alter Boys. Um, with those who might not be familiar, tell us about the Alter Billies and how you moved into that style of music. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I've always had a, a love for 50 music, but I never scratched below the, the surface. In fact, at one point, before I got my Telecaster, I had a garage guitar. That was I was going to purchase, but it was bought out from underneath me by an unsaid uh, Christian rockabilly band at the time. Oh wow! <laughs> so <laughs> different story. Uh, in two thousand nine, I met a gentleman by the name of John Hollings. He was actually his son, and my son were the same age, same grade, and we become good friends with the family. Began talking with John and. John's into all kinds of music, but in particular, like rockabilly. And he came to me one day and said, you know, you got a lot of twang in your music. Not as a put down, <laughs> but just let me know. And, and he said, let me make a tape. And so he made me a tape or a CD of different styles of 50s music, mostly with Grady Martin on it, guitar player. Mm-hmm. And I started listening to it going, wow, I never heard this stuff before. This is really good. And slowly I started exploring this music, this genre that I known about but not gone below the surface and again at the time i was growing up if you didn't have 45s of this music you didn't know because there was not the internet right right so as i started exploring and i'm like wow this is really cool and just getting into it and so i said well let's you and i let's do something doesn't you think my music's so twang let's let's take my music that I've done and just rearrange it into some rockabilly stuff. Yeah. And we'll just, for lack of a better name, we'll call ourselves the Alter Billies and go play churches. He's okay. So we called up Chuck. He joined in 2010. We kept the name Alter Billies. You know, we yeah. were doing You Found Me and Silent Night, kind of mm-hmm. more rockabilly style. We took some of the songs, World Burning from Forever Mercy, Listen Up, Calling to You, that had that twang in it. We put out that first CD with that in mind. I think we might have had one or two originals that I Mm -hmm. hadn't released yet on there. But then a funny thing happened in 2011. I started writing songs, and I hadn't written anything in years. I just figured I was done. And I found I was pretty good at writing rockabilly twang type of music. So this led to that. Then we had Heading Out West, and we started releasing stuff. I just started writing again. And then this led to ladder. that. I found I could write up pretty good train songs, you know, <laughs> that, that were decent. So yeah. we wrote Titans of the Wasash for the big boy. And 
you know, it's just one of those things. You, it's like the altar boys. You, you start at one place and you, mm-hmm. you grow and you take the next step and the next step and the next step. And before we know, we're not even doing any altar boys anymore. Right. We're doing all this new stuff and and a lot of the covers uh, of Elvis and, and things that weren't quite as popular. I mean, we do a lot of the popular stuff, but, you know, I'd never heard Shake, Rattle and Roll by Elvis before. I don't remember hearing something else by Eddie Cochran. Hmm. I know I heard Summer in the uh, Summertime Blues oh, yeah. and Rock Around the Clock and, you know, Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry, but I'd never heard Maybelline. I didn't know he wrote route 66 so you know i just found that i really love this music i love the simplicity but at the same time there's it's a lot more complex than what people think if you listen to grady martin these early guitar players that were jazz oriented that were amazing players and i'm finding all the stuff about sun records and sam phillips and where elvis came from where johnny cash came from where jerry lee came from where my favorite came from Carl, Carl Perkins. Perkins, yeah, I know you love him so He's much. He's my guy, yeah. and uh, yeah, I hear you. Two two summers ago, we my family we took a trip back to uh, to Tennessee and did the tour of of Sun Records. And you know, they take you inside the studio and they tell you the history. And of course, you get to see where the Million Dollar Quartet and you know all those guys were. And but they don't let you in the in the control room, and. Um, so I really wanted to see in there. So I waited until the tour, the rest of the people had kind of filtered out and our tour director, our docent was there. I said, Hey, would you mind if I just step in the control room and take, take a couple of pictures? And he said, yeah, just don't tell anybody. So I got to go into the control room and see all that equipment. It's still the same equipment. They record on the same stuff, then transfer everything digitally. It was surreal yes. to, to be inside that booth and look out on that room where so many people, so many people have recorded and made rock history. It's quite a place. Well, you know, yeah, kind of the same thing happened to me. I just wouldn't leave the room. <laughs> I didn't yeah. leave, and the girl's like, you've got to go. Oh, God, I just don't want to leave. Yeah, and that's great that you're keeping that type of music alive. You know, as a three-piece, it's you and Johnny X and Chuck Cummins. And it wasn't until I saw the reunion show for the Prayer Chain where Dakota Motor Company played that I realized Chuck was their drummer. I didn't know. I used to listen to them back in the early 90s. And so I was standing at that show with Steve Hindelong from the choir while Chuck was playing. And I looked at Steve and I'm like, Chuck is a great drummer. I was blown away by his drumming. He is a fantastic player. Yeah, he's a good player. Real good. Real good drummer. Yeah. Really, really loved listening to that. And I, I've liked Rockabilly since I was in middle school. That's when the Stray Cats were really starting to get popular and uh, kind of make their way. So let's, let's listen to an altar Billy song. We're going to listen to all in one um, by the altar Billies. What can you tell us about the song and then we'll play it. Well, I had a song called all in written before this more of a jazz thing. And uh, every once in a while people send me lyrics. Sometimes I can't do much with them, but every once in a while I'll find a line or two in there. Mm-hmm. And so a gentleman by the name of Matt Hadley sent me, I told him I was writing a song called All In, and he sent me some lyrics about being all in. I said, you know, I can make another rockabilly tune out of this called All In. I'll call it All In One, because mm-hmm. the record has All In One, which is more of a Carl Perkins type of tune, mm-hmm. and then All In Two, which is more of a jazz billy tune, which kind of uh, ends the whole record. Mm-hmm. 
And so I just took his lyrics, a few lines out of it, and uh, created a new one. And I, it's a nice opening song, and it's a, definitely a nod to Carl Perkins. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, let's give it a listen, and then we'll chat more on the backside. Gonna scream, gonna shout, tell the world what it's all about. I'll sing it again, cause I'm all in. I'll give it all, stand tall, even when you're about to fall. I'll sing it again, cause I'm all in. If you don't know where to start, that's fine and okay. But one foot but the other, you'll be on your way. And if your face is mounted, take one step at a time. Good book says we can do all things, nothing we can't climb. Go on, scream, go shout, tell the world what it's all about. I'll sing it again, cause I'm all. So this music is from such a great period in American history. I'm so glad that you guys are keeping it alive. And you guys play pretty regularly around the Orange County area. You guys playing a couple times, a few times a month, it sounds like. Yes. Yes, we do. We haven't played in a while since November. Uh, usually around this time we take a break and then a couple people got sick and had other things going on. So, uh, yeah, we're picking it up. We're in middle of February, we're playing a rockabilly festival out in Arizona called Rockabilly Reunion. It's great, wonderful festival. Oh, I think. Did you guys play that last year? Mm hmm. Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, and that. we had uh, uh, Johnny Hat and Brian Setzer's from Brian Setzer Orchestra play with us, uh, came up. Wow. And did some. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> so fun. So good. Yeah, <laughs> it was a great time. Great That's festival. It. 
One of the things I love, Mike, is how you are preserving this great music for another generation because of what you do as a music teacher. Tell us about how you're transmitting a love for this music to some youngins. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> so well, I've been teaching for 25 years, but to be honest with you, I've never been able to bring in a little bit of myself into the music. I'm always have to teach violin. I'm not really a violinist. I teach mm-hmm. band. I teach keyboard. I'm not really a keyboardist. I teach recorder. I don't particularly like it. I teach singing, <laughs> choir, which is great, but never pa- able to bring like myself. So finally I got to a school where the principal was interested in me starting a band. And she sent me to some um, training regarding starting a rock band or whatever called mm-hmm. little kids rock. Oh, cool. and I can't, yeah. And I came back from it. She goes, what do you think? I go, well, if I do this, I want to teach rockabilly. And she looks at me and she says, I don't care what you teach. You just get kids <laughs> on those guitars. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, in a very loving way, wonderful, wonderful yeah. principle. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, okay, I'll try. <laughs> it's just like, okay, you played at bass at your church. Okay, you play this. Well, we're going to study rockabilly and we're going to learn a song. Okay. So awesome. we just started with the song Blue Suede Shoes and I got them to look and we came up with the name, the Wild Mustangs. And <laughs> so I was able to share share this music. A part of it is history. We look at videos mm-hmm. of early Elvis and Carl Perkins and Eddie Cochran and some of Jerry Lee mm-hmm. and read about it. And I just start from the scratch. I mean, a lot of these kids couldn't really play. And all I did need to do for Blue Suede Shoes is teach them A, D, and E. Yeah. And so this year, that started in 2019. So this year is the fourth generation. Wow. Uh, and so I got a group, and they played a Christmas performance at the school. And of course, the song they played was uh, Blue Suede Shoes. Nice. And a rockabilly version, Jingle Bell. So I'm able to bring this into the classroom. I have a classroom, I have a drum set, and all the instruments that I need to get them going. No, I, I think that's very unique. And I just love it, you know, having two teenage sons that started playing music. Well, they were taking piano lessons in, in elementary school, but, you know, they had they had band. Sorry, okay, the, the school said you either have to sing in the choir or play in the band. And so it was, you know, trumpet or drums or something. And uh, they, they're both in high school now and, and playing trumpet. In fact, just got to go uh, to march in the Macy's parade over Thanksgiving that we went oh, back wow. to New Congratulations. York for. Yeah, That's it was awesome. super, super cool. They're both really talented. And so I love the fact that you start teaching them so young. I think people oftentimes don't put enough value on that. You start teaching a kid music when they're in elementary school. And of course, it's very rudimentary, but then you see them in middle school and how much better they sound. And by the time they move into their middle and upper high school range, they can sound really, really incredible. But a lot of those seeds are planted back where you have them. So I, I'm just so grateful that there are people like you who have a passion to teach a new generation. Because yeah. I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that if a kid picks up an instrument, they won't pick up a gun. So I, I think there's some real wisdom. Uh, it saves lives. Definitely saves lives. I still have kids that come back. I mean, they don't, uh, you know, they're kids. 
they appreciate it to a point. If you would, I know that years down the line, in fact, I saw a lot of kids come back and they, I missed this other email, email. I missed this so much. I didn't realize how much I was going to miss it. And I tell yeah. them, you're going to miss this. <laughs> you may not sense it now. You want to get out of here now, but you got plenty. You got your rest of your life to be growing up. Enjoy being a kid. It's the best time of your life. Yeah. And this is going to be something you're going to look back on. You may think of that goofy music teacher. <laughs> you made us play rockabilly. What was that Elvis stuff about? But, you know, I might just be kind of uh, an image or whatever. But this is going to have a profound effect on you years down the line. Absolutely. So let's talk about where people can hear all the music you've made. Alter Boys, Alter Billies, Clash of Symbols. All of that is on all of the streaming platforms, right? Yes, and Alter Boys do have a website, alterboys.net, and a YouTube page with a lot of neat videos. And not just Alter Boys. We've got some Lifesavers on there and some other bands on there, and it's a good history. I try to release much as much video as I can on on the band because then we got some Cornerstone up there, and then the yeah. Alter Billies have a really good YouTube channel. We're getting mm -hmm. over... 100,000 views a month on, which is pretty good. Mostly our train wow. songs. That's yeah. so great. A million, over a million a year. I mean, compared to Demi Lovato, and that's not much, but for a little independent group. Oh, yeah. For Alter Billies, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. That's great, Mike. And I, I'll put the links to all of those places in the episode notes so people, as they're listening to the podcast, can just scroll down and just click those and, uh, and enjoy those. Because you're right, both of those those YouTube channels are very, very well stocked. They're very important, and they're yeah. I I stay, try to stay up on it when I can. Where can people find out when the Alter Billies and where the Alter Billies are playing? Where's the best place to find that? Uh, I we always announce them on Instagram and, and Facebook. Okay, great. Yeah. I'll link those as well. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and those are family friendly shows. Great music. It's just fun. Always and family friendly. Yeah. Always family friendly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, I have. Absolutely, thoroughly loved our chat as I knew that I would. A million thank yous for spending some time hanging out with me today. I always love telling my story, and I especially today wanted to share important people that have made it possible. Steve, Jeff, Rob, Matt, Mark, so many that have put in that time and been such good friends to me. Chad, Johnny, and Chuck, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, without them, it just couldn't happen. Um, well, and then the sacrifice couldn't. of all of your, you know, the guys' wives, you know. Yeah. Nancy and, and all the other guys, have, their wives. My have, poor have... wife. Yes, my <laughs> poor wife. <laughs> well, she's me. commemorated in song on the first album, so hopefully she is. <laughs> She's like, you know, she says to me, you know, most guys write like a love song to their wife. You write your punk rock song to me. <laughs> I go, hey, honey, at least it's a song, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. Well, I appreciate your time today, Mike. Thank you so much. And for everybody listening, thank you. And if you enjoy Mike's music and his various bands like I do, tell others about this episode. Share it. Leave a rating and review. And you will earn my unending thanks. So thank you for listening. Keep your bags packed and join us on our next Journey to the Stage. And that's a wrap. 